Um, I, uh, I do hope you guys have a, a Bible tonight. I'm not going to have you jumping around in a lot of places just for the sake of time, but um, we will be in Revelation chapter 11. And I, I would suggest for you guys to all have an outline. Usually I don't really care if you take an outline or not. That's more if you want it. But if you don't have an outline this time, um, Where? They're, on the, they're on the back chair over there. Um, just because we're dealing with some technical things and dealing with some complex issues of prophecy linking back to Daniel, which we talked about uh, before. But if you have the outline, it might help you to kind of track with it. Just because, generally speaking, this is a difficult topic and one that a lot of people um, debate over and have a lot of different views and opinions on. But usually, you know, I'm totally fine with the exercise of preaching just being what it is as a means of grace. I don't want it to be an academic, necessarily like an academic endeavor. It's a, it's a means by which God builds faith into us through the working of the Spirit for those who have the Spirit. And so like I, won't, I usually would never say, oh, you really need this outline, but it might be helpful tonight just because of the nature of what we're talking to, uh, talking about. So the, uh, the apocalypse or the revelation, remember those words, same thing, that of Jesus was given to and written by the apostle John around 90 AD while he was suffering for the faith under the reign of the emperor, emperor named Domitian who wanted to be addressed as Lord and God. And Christians, of course, aren't okay with that. We don't call anyone Lord and God except for the Lord Christ Jesus. And so John is exiled on this prison island now. He's pulled away from his family, his friends, his church, but it's not enough to separate him from his God. Nothing, not even death itself, can separate the Christian from his or her God because the victory that Jesus won for us is complete and final, and everything that happens happens according to God's sovereign will. And in order to give the church hope and confidence in light of the difficulties that we face for just simply being the church in this fallen world, and in order to bless the church, God gives John this revelation based on the person and work of Christ Jesus. And it's a very unique message because it is simultaneously timely and timeless. In other words, it's exactly what the original audience needed to hear, those seven churches in West Asia that we talked about in chapter 2 and 3, and it's exactly what we need to hear as well today. The Apostle John has been speaking of the church during the time period called the last days, uh, during the time between Jesus' first, or his resurrection from the dead, where he conquered death, and the parousia, the second coming of Christ, which will usher in the eternal age. And this whole period of time between the two advents of Christ is known as the Great Tribulation. We saw that in Revelation 7. Matthew 24 talks about it as well. And throughout it, God's people, the church, are locked in this spiritual battle, which will often have physical ramifications for those that are here on the earth. Uh, that sometimes will even lead to death for Christians. But John has also shown us that the church and every Christian then is in fact, victorious, that they are sealed by God, that they are reigning with Christ in glory, and that our prayers are even part of the ordained means of bringing about his purposes throughout history. John has been seeing and showing us what it's like and what God is doing through the event from a, different, from a few different vantage points. He's shown us scenes in heaven and that perspective. He's given us a glimpse of what travails on earth from the vantage point of the enemies of God and also from the angle of the church. 
And most recently, in chapters 10 and 11, John is explaining the mission of the church that has been charged with communicating the gospel, this message that was like honey in his mouth and but bitter in his stomach, because we understand that the good news of salvation needs to be understood in light of God's law, which, you know, because the law, it shows us our sin, and in a way, it kills us. Romans 7, 9, the Apostle Paul says that when the law um, revived a sin, or when, the, when I was given the law, sin revived in my life, and he died. Hence, the bitterness aspect of it. But then also, it's bitter because it leads us to be the target of the world and the satanically empowered beast and harlot that Revelation speaks of. The beast will be mentioned for the first time in the text we have this evening. And we'll get to know more about the specifics of this beast and this harlot that I've been alluding to because it's, it's part of this vision. We just haven't got to it in Revelation yet. Uh, we need to understand, though, that this whole thing that we've been reading here, the whole time... Uh, it's all unfolding according to God's purposes. And we just haven't, you know, yeah, exactly got to that point where we speak about the beast specifically yet. And so the church is supposed to preach the gospel and then also at the same time warn the world of the wrath that is to come to those who don't repent of their sin and rest in Christ. And all throughout this period of time, God and Christ specifically, because he's the one who was, op- who was worthy to open the scroll and to undo those seals, he is bringing about these events to pass and then showing and revealing them to us here in this book. The four horsemen of the first four seals. And then the two following seals have parallels to the first four trumpets. And then the two following trumpets, which we also know are called the first two woes. And those woes were about, or those fifth and sixth trumpet, were about the demonic activity that takes place in the spiritual war that we are in. And even the terrors of these things won't lead people to repent, we read. Uh, repentance is always going to be a work of God's grace in, in an individual and not in an individual's response to the events that happen in the world. And so we come to this interlude, or parenthesis, in chapter 10 and 11 of Revelation, which is between the 6th and 7th trumpet, just like there was a, a parenthesis or an interlude in between the 6th and 7th seal, because in both, in both scenarios, the 7th seal, the 7th, trumpet it talks about the final judgment when christ comes back and which is a day of joy for the saints but a day of trembling and fear for those who aren't uh believing and trusting in god and so god takes time in between the sixth and seventh seal and the sixth and seventh trumpet to encourage the church he's saying essentially that yes we will have it hard in this life after all christ himself suffered and died and he didn't deserve it But this will by no means mean that the church won't be victorious or that we won't be overcomers and conquerors. The first interlude between the seals was clear that the church is victorious and that all of the redeemed are sealed and protected. Remember, talked about the 144,000. And now that same message is being proclaimed again, but this time it's in light of the enemies who are pursuing and persecuting the church. So let's read the text and then we'll pray. And again, this is perhaps, and I've said a few messages ago that I think when we were getting into chapter 9, really that the symbolism was, going, was becoming more difficult. And this chapter here is probably one of the most debated um, chapters. If you have a background with those Left Behind movies, I'm going to totally you know, give you a different view uh, of what is happening right here tonight. But that's what I've been trying to do this whole time anyways. So let's read Revelation 11, 1 through 14, pray briefly, and then we'll look at it. The word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 in chapter 11. Then I was giving, given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. 
but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may, be, may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some of the people and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents. But these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. And But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they, had, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified, and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for letting us have this time together. and. We pray, Lord, that you would let it be beneficial, that we would come out of this understanding your word better. We know the potential here to have very many different interpretations, and we're grateful, Lord, for the effort that many believers have put into this text in years past, but we pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand it in light of the whole story, and that you would make us to fully appreciate your glory and grace all the more because of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so... First thing is to remember this passage doesn't come from nowhere. We are continuing on, having heard that the church is commissioned with the law and the gospel, with this sweet and bitter message. And now John speaks of two mysterious, I mean, they're highly debated as to who they are, witnesses upon the earth, witnesses who are killed because of their testimony of Christ, but then who are vindicated and shown to be right and just and favored by God because they are risen after a certain period of time and as a testimony then to the foolishness of those who killed them, which is the world, the unbelieving population. It's a sad state for those who killed them. But before getting to that, John continues with this scene that began in chapter 10 in which he's encouraging the church after having told them about the bitter aspect of the church's task in this age, which will be explained by the two witnesses. And so the focus shifts from the mighty angel of the scroll and its message to this mighty angel and now this temple. And so John says in verse 1, Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it's given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So before we say anything about this passage, it's important to remind ourselves of the fact that this is apocalyptic language. It's highly symbolic, and it's, it's not to be interpreted literally. That's the same method we've been applying this whole time. And so as we've seen, the key to understanding the symbols which John uses is in how it brings to light the Old Testament and as well as how these symbols are also understood elsewhere within the book of Revelation. 
And so in the prior interlude between the sixth and seventh seal, judgments of Revelation 7, John has already described the earth on the church of the 144,000 that they were not allowed to harm. They were sealed on their foreheads. And then also the church in heaven. There was that great multitude that no one could count. And he sees that he's seeing that same scene again, only this time he's seeing it in light of this description of the temple. The, the, the church on the earth and the church in heaven. Because remember, this is an interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet, just like there was an interlude between the sixth and seventh seal. So these things are lining up. John has already told us the church on the earth suffers during the great tribulation, while the church in heaven, heaven is triumphant singing the praise of God. They're victorious. Remember, they're clothed in, in white. Their robes have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And that's the interpretive key here as well. Remember the parallels that we saw last time between Ezekiel's prophetic ministry and John's. Remember both of them? Ezekiel had to eat a scroll as well. Both were commanded to, to eat the scroll, and that was symbolic of internalizing the messages that they were supposed to preach. Ezekiel was supposed to preach to the nation of Israel who was disobedient, while John is supposed to preach to the nations. And not only John, but also the church as well, right? Because John is giving the church this book so the church might do what is contained in it. And remember, at the end of Ezekiel's prophecy, beginning in the 40th chapter, which um, we'll spend a little bit of time thinking about in a moment, because Ezekiel, in his prophetic ministry, he also describes a temple as well. And he... and. Ezekiel's vision, which begins in verse or chapter 40, he sees an angel go and measure and record its dimensions. That's 40 verse 5. And there's lots of confusion about this. Some people think that a temple is going to be built here in Jerusalem in the future at some point, uh, but that's not the case. Revelation shows us that this is apocalyptic literature, and, is, and the apocalyptic literature also in Ezekiel is also symbolic of the people of God. But here, John is commanded to measure the temple himself. It's not an angel measuring it. It's John that's told to measure it. And he's given this rod by the angel. But what jumps out about this is the fact that John is also told to, to measure or to count the worshipers. And interesting, interestingly, we don't actually see John measuring. He doesn't do any actual measuring here. Whereas in Ezekiel, there's eight chapters of this super detailed measuring, which is a lot to take in. Um, Later on in Revelation 21, John's going to describe the temple in detail. This is in, like, he's describing the victorious state of the church and in the, in the eternal age. And he'll go into more detail there about its size and its appearance. But here, John is preoccupied with those that are within the temple walls, safely dwelling in heaven. Now, the symbolism should be obvious. Throughout the New Testament, the people of God are depicted as the temple of God. They are indwelt by his spirit. And the tabernacle and the temple and the Old Testament were types of the spiritual reality in the New Testament. When we think of types and types in the Old Testament and the anti-type in the New Testament, it is, it is a physical reality in the Old Testament describing a spiritual truth, the anti-type in the New. Okay? And so the new, this is an especially prominent theme like in Paul's writings, for example. I mean, 1 Corinthians 3.16, uh, where it talks about the different... Um, how we're all being built up. And also 1 Corinthians talks about the, these, the metaphor of a body as well. But then Ephesians 2.20, where it speaks about how it's a temple we're all being built. Or in 1 Peter as well, 2.4 and 4.4 and through 17, where it talks about it being holy stones built on top of each other. Um, it's also important to remember that John has already told us in Revelation 3.12 um, the reality that the church is the temple, the people are the temple. It's been a long time since we've been there, but if you want to see it for yourself... It's Revelation 3.12. This is to one of the churches. And he says, 
if you remember, he says, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar, him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. So talking again, you know, establishing the fact that this is what Revelation and the rest of Scripture already talks about. Temple is not a literal temple, a building like a church building like we're in right now, but often it, and always really in the New Testament, it is talking about the people of God. And this specific aspect is talking about the people of God that are in heaven, those who are victorious, those who have either died from persecution and martyrdom, or who have just died having lived the Christian life uh, through the grace of God. And so when John measures the temple, John is counting the members of the triumphant church in heaven surrounding the altar where the prayers of the suffering saints upon the earth ascend to heaven. We talked about that in Revelation 6. It's protected by and it's known fully by God. That's what, that's what we are supposed to understand from the measuring and the counting. It's communicating that God is protecting his church. He knows them. They're not going to be lost. Same message is communicated in Ezekiel as well. But then also, John sees the outer court of the temple which we read is given over to the Gentiles to be trampled by them. And interestingly, he's not supposed to measure that. This is symbolic of the church suffering upon the earth for the 42 months period. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But this is technical, so bear with me. Uh, we've, we've seen, and part of the reason for that is that when the church comes under persecution, think about Matthew's um, gospel, where he talks about the different types of soils that there are some people in the church who under persecution and for other various reasons will show themselves not to truly be a part of the church and they'll leave the church. And so that's why it's not to be counted and numbered and also because God is allowing this Gentile trampling of the church. Gentile here is, is um, symbolic for non-believers. I mean, Gentiles can be saved, obviously, but here it's symbolic for being a non-believer. And so... Again, bear with me. This is on your outline. It might help. But we've seen in our earlier discussion of the prophecy of the 72, or the 70 weeks in Daniel 9, uh, 24 through 27, also speaks about this period of time in Daniel 12, and that 42 months is three and a half years. I mean, that's just simple math. You can do that, right? If a year is 12 months, 42 months is, it would be 36, and then half of that to 42. It's three and a half years. The same period of time is mentioned throughout the book of Revelation, and it's sometimes referred to as 1,260 days, or a time, a times, and a half a time. But those are all referring to the same period of time, which is three, three and a half years long. 1,260 days is three and a half years. The same time period of this, what's called the 70th week of Daniel. And that's just from taking a 30-day month and, again, times it by 42. So according to Daniel, it is that time after the anointed one, Jesus Christ, has come to end all transgression, to put an end to sin, atone for wickedness, seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy, which is Daniel 9.24. And that's speaking of the 69 weeks from the event that happened in Jerusalem to the point in which Jesus came. And then after that, that 70th week, which is longer than just a week and different than the other 69 weeks described by Daniel because uh, it's broken down in half in Daniel's prophecy. They're waiting until that final jubilee that's ushered in by Christ Jesus as his second coming. And so in Daniel's prophecy in 926, 
the Messiah is cut off in the middle of the 70th week of the year. So you think in Daniel's prophecy, there's 70 weeks. So you go through the first 69, you get to the 70th week, and then there's this division in the, in the last week of the 70th. And, and in doing so, he, the Messiah confirms a covenant with many for the final seven years. So Daniel 9.27. Which, so we're thinking about this 42 that's being spoken of here which leaves the last three and a half years of the 70th week to be filled before God's ultimate jubilee is ushered in and all the captives are set freed and all the debts are paid. Here in Revelation 11:2, John is now interpreting the last half of Daniel's 70th week to be a reference to this church age, this time that we're now living in, that period of time known as the Great Tribulation or the last days or the millennium which is the entire time period between the first advent and the second coming of Jesus, the parousia. And to put it as simply as possible, because I know this is complex, we're dealing with, you know, I don't know how many times we had one over Daniel in Sunday school, and usually the prophetic texts just kind of get glanced over, because these are notoriously difficult. But we're trying to understand what Daniel is writing about in light of what John is also showing us here with more clarity. Because here in, the, in Revelation, it is more clear because now we know the Messiah is the one, is Jesus Christ, and he's the one who was expected to come in that last week. And so that leaves, to put it as simply as possible, in Revelation 11, 1 through 2, John sees the church triumphant in terms of the temple, the people of God who are residing in heaven, and the church militant in the earth which is the outer court now trampled down by the Gentiles for 42 months, which again is three and a half years, uh, which is the half of Daniel's 70th week. So this is the suffering church on the earth. The scene clearly echoes Revelation 7 as John sees the same scene in the period of time, but from another vantage point or an angle, a camera angle, a recapitulation, remember, is the technical term that we've been saying. And then in Revelation 11, 3, John's focus shifts from the temple to the, on the, in the earth, the people of God in the earth, to the two mysterious witnesses who preach the gospel to the nations at, at a great cost and harm to themselves, but who are eventually are vindicated by God in the end. In verse 3, we read that the one who instructed John to measure the temple will grant authority to my two witnesses. <clears throat> Grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Again, 1,260 days, three and a half years. It's taking us to that last period, the last days, the whole time period that Daniel even talked about. So throughout the New Testament, God calls his people to be witnesses for for Christ Jesus, since we have been entrusted with the testimony as to his person and, and his work. But these two witnesses that we read about, they're clothed in sackcloth and ashes, and that recalls to our minds several images from the Old Testament. What, what, what is usually happening when someone has sackcloth and ashes on? Mourning. Mourning. Repentance, right? They're, they're mourning sin. They're, they're repentant over it. And so we think of, you know, like Hezekiah, perhaps, and, or the king of Nineveh who put on sackcloth and ashes, symbolic of their repentance. It talks about that in Jonah as well, 3.5, or Isaiah 37, 1 through 2. Jesus reminds us of these wicked cities, Tyre, who we read about in Ezekiel a few months ago, and Sidon, who they, they would have done 
the same in repent if Jesus had performed his miracles there in Matthew 11 and 2. Furthermore, there are two witnesses mentioned because two is the number of witnesses required to establish the truth of testimony. Given the fact that they are to preach for 1,260 days, which is, again, the same length of time as 42 months, uh, during which the outer court of the temple is to be trampled down by the Gentiles. You notice that, right? These prophetic witnesses, they're supposed to do their ministry that same period of time as the outer court is being trampled, 42 months or 1,260 days. Uh, their ministry then it extends to the entire church age. It's not just regulated to some short, literal, three-and-a-half-year period in the future. It's extending the whole time. This is the church's ministry. But, and I'm kind of giving away my answer here, that doesn't answer the important question that people debate over here. Who are these guys? Uh, beginning in verse 4, their identity is revealed <laughs> in apocalyptic language. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Well, if anyone would harm them, fire portion of their mouth and consumes their foes. And if anyone would harm them, that is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So once again, we're helped with John's symbolic language by looking at the physical type in the Old Testament and what we've already seen in the New Testament. What did the lampstands represent in, in Revelation 1? There were the seven lampstands. Do you guys remember what they were? The churches. The churches, right? And so here now we have these lampstands at this time. But then also, if we were to think back to Zechariah chapter 4, Zechariah uses the same imagery. Two olive trees, and then these olive trees, they make an oil that supplies a lampstand, which in Zechariah's prophecy referred to Zerubbabel, who was a royal figure who was going to build the temple, and then Joshua, who was a high priest that would lead the people of God in their worship of Yahweh. And so what we see in this symbolic imagery here of these two witnesses, which thinking of what we already know about lampstands in Revelation and then back in Zechariah's prophecy, is that we are seeing the offices of Christ being put forth. Those of priest and king which king has to deal with the law and both of those two men in turn prefigure the coming of israel's messiah and the same is true for another set of two old testament types moses and elijah like moses the two witnesses described by john can bring bring destructive plagues upon the earth even turning water to blood remember that right the trumpets also dealt with the plagues uh, the, those first trumpets first four trumpets, or no, all the trumpets, excuse me, have been dealing with the plagues, very parallel to the plagues in Egypt. And then Elijah, like Elijah, they can shut up the sky with rain. Elijah did that for three years, remember? And then also they destroy their enemies with fire. When did, when did Elijah destroy his enemies with fire? The, the great um, prophetic tech, uh, test with the prophets of Baal. Uh, when he, fire came from heaven, it consumed the altar and then the, the priests around the altar even. Uh, so therefore, the two witnesses are clearly prophets, and the allusion to Zerubbabel and Joshua means that they're kings and priests as well. So the vision of the two witnesses then, all that, all that symbolism together, what it's saying is that it's symbolic of the picture of the church upon the earth during the, the time of the Great Tribulation. They're not to be interpreted literally as is often done by our dispensationalist friends, as is often done like in those Left Behind movies. Um, 
they teach that it's literally Moses or Enoch and Elijah that they'll physically return to the earth during the seventh year, seven year tribulation only to be killed by the Antichrist. But that's not what computes with the rest of the book and what we have been seeing. We may say that the church itself has a ministry like Moses and Elijah, which of course we do. We tell the law, we tell the truth about God and tell people to repent. And then we also, and we share the gospel in that as well. But that is different than saying the actual people. And so we know that this is symbolic of the entire church age for four reasons. First, in Revelation 5.10, John has already stated that God's people are constituted a kingdom and priests to serve our God, who will reign on the earth. And here, John has the prophetic role of kingly and priestly offices as well. Secondly, we're told in verse 7 that when the two witnesses have finished their testimony, the beast comes up from the abyss and will attack them and overpower and kill them. A statement which is virtually repeated in Revelation 13, 7, where we read that the beast was given power to make war to the saints and to conquer them. Right? So it can't be, it can't be just two witnesses there or here, but then the saints in general in Revelation 13. It must mean the same thing. And the analogy of scripture tells us we use what's plain and clear to interpret what's not clear. And Revelation 13, 7 is clear. This is not as clear. The Revelation um, 13, 7 text is a clear reference to the beast's assault upon the church. Thirdly, when we consider that these two witnesses minister during the same time period as the outer court is being allowed to be trampled by the Gentiles, which is, again, 42 months, it's clear that these two witnesses are symbolic of Christ's church, equipped with God's word upon the earth during the entire church age as she proclaims the content of the scroll in chapter 10, that bittersweet message, the words of the law and the gospel, while warning the inhabitants of the earth about the final judgment that's to come. And then lastly, we know it's symbolic because the, the text actually tells us it is. It calls them olive trees and lampstands. And then it's in a time frame then we can't just take the time frame and then go all of a sudden that's a literal three and a half years. That's not consistent Bible interpretation. So because of their message, the beast turns on them whenever, they're, whenever the beast is empowered by Satan and he kills them, he seeks to silence them. But as long as their mission to preach the gospel has not been completed, they are protected by God through the judgments which come upon the earth. Judgments which sound very much like the four horsemen and the seal judgments of the first for the trumpet judgments as well. And think of it. The fire, which destroys their enemies. The drought, which befalls the earth. The calamities, which come upon the sea. And the various plagues, which God sends upon the earth through the two witnesses. It echoes the seal judgments that John has already described in Revelation 6, 8 through 1. It echoes the trumpet judgments of Revelation 9 through uh, at the beginning of 10. This isn't brand new info that we're giving here. It's the same info but from a different angle. It's recapitulation once again. And through it all, God protects his people and frustrates his enemies. But when the witness's mission is complete, the beast is finally allowed to take their lives, according to verse 8 through 11. We read, And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord is crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because the two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. They stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. So, the church, having been, what we read here is having been persecuted, killed by the beast, the satanically empowered government, more in future chapters, leaves the bodies of these witnesses to lie in the unburied great city 
which is later depicted in Revelation as Babylon the Great, but here it's depicted as Sodom, which is, we're all familiar with Sodom is, right? Sodom is a prime biblical example of godlessness and judgment. We all know what happened there, right? Where the, it was burned with sulfur. Uh, and then Egypt as well, as compared to Egypt, which is also a nation which, you know, cruelly held is, the people of God in slavery. And then later on, through Israel's time in Canaan, Egypt was always a, a false ally. They were always a false help to Israel. <coughs> so these are bad places, obviously. And so the reference to the place where Jesus was crucified has led some people to think that, that John sees the witnesses actually dying in Jerusalem during the supposed seven-year tribulation. But since the context is the church's witness to the world, the point may simply be that since Jesus died in Jerusalem, rejected by his people, the earthly Jerusalem then symbolically becomes a symbol of the rejection of Christ by the entire city of man, emphasized by Babylon the Great. And think of their death even. How long did they stay dead for? Three and a half days, right? How long was Christ dead for? Three days, three and a half days. He's risen on the third day. Christ was placed in a tomb. The world doesn't let these people be placed in a tomb. There's all this symbolism being caught up. And is wanting, John is wanting to make sense of what our experience is through what has already happened. This Babylon the Great is a symbol of the false religious system that is opposed to the truth. We might even think of Rome even. And that is a part why the, Rome, by the, why the Reformed Confessions think and assert that the Pope is the Antichrist. More on that when we get to that chapter of the book. But nevertheless, the church faithfully bears the witness of Jesus throughout the entire church age, the three and a half years or 42 months and 1,260 days. And while the beast is apparently triumphant, his, his triumph is symbolically much shorter. It's only three and a half days compared to three and a half years. And refusing to bury the corpse of one's enemy was in the ancient world a sign of ultimate contempt, of disgrace. As the, as the world inhabitants rejoice at the death of the witnesses, by the way, think of that as well. How can the whole world say these two are dead? Right? It has to be symbolic. It has to be symbolic for the church everywhere. But their bodies are left, unless we think that, oh, there's going to be some worldwide cable satellite system where everybody can zoom in and see. That's the Left Behind movies, by the way. But anyways, as the world's inhabitants rejoice at the death of the witnesses, their bodies are left in the street. Um, it's a sign to symbolize how much the world hates the message of the church and hates the church. And just think of what the world says about us now, friends. And they mock us. They act as if we are backwards and bigots. They act as if we're just old-fashioned and obsolete. They rejoice at Christians, at Christians failing, and they, and the especially wicked, rejoice at our deaths. But the world can never defeat the kingdom of God. We read in verse eleven that after the three and a half days, those who, uh, after three and a half days, the breath of life of God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. So here again, there are loud echoes from Ezekiel's prophecy. In Ezekiel 37.10, where Ezekiel writes, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life, and they stood upon their feet, a vast army. You remember what that, what is called in, in Ezekiel chapter 37? It's called the Valley of Dry Bones. I saw you mouthing it over there. Um, so just when the beast appears to be triumphant, 
God raises up a mighty army to continue the church's witness. And furthermore, as we've seen already in the earlier book, when the beast kills the saints, they come to life and they reign with Christ for the thousand years, the millennium. So John sees the same thing here again in the context of the church's mission. They hear a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies watched them. This symbolic resurrection and ascension to heaven, it ends up striking terror in their hearts of all those who hate Christ and reject his gospel. And just when the witnesses appear to have been shamed and humiliated, God vindicates them. And in doing so, he, he humiliates those who thought they had won. And it points us to the victory that Christ has, doesn't it, church? In Acts 1, this same thing happens to Jesus, but it's in front of his disciples who love him. Jesus ascends in a cloud while the disciples look on and they're encouraged. And a voice from heaven says, he will return to you in the same way that he is leaving. So this is simply an an apocalypse way to say that we share in the blessing of Christ and what he has earned and that what his enemies won't win. And even when they think they are winning, they're only showing that Christ has won for us and we are not lost. But not only does God's vindication of the witnesses strike terror in the hearts of those who persecute the church, so does the judgment of God which now comes upon the great city, which foreshadows the final judgment which is to come, which will be in the seventh trumpet, which we'll deal with next time. So John says in verse 13, At that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Verse 14, the second woe was passed. Behold, the third woe is to come. So this earthquake destroys a tenth of the city, perhaps part of the seal and trumpet judgments, and it clearly prefigures the sixth seal judgment, which that talked about a great earthquake associated with the final judgment, which now accompanies the return of Christ to earth. Remember from that passage, it said that people will try to hide themselves in the mountains and that they'll want the, mount, the mountains to collapse on them under, because they're so terrified of the wrath of God. And an amazing bit of irony, though, thinking back to Ezekiel, still, John now describes 7,000 unbelievers are killed, which is the same number of believers who remained in Israel during the time of Elijah. So having watched God preserve his people and vindicate his cause when his hand of judgment comes upon the earth, the people of the great city's response is to be terrified and to give God glory. But it may be too late. According to John, with the interlude now complete, we read the second well is past and the third well is coming soon. And so we'll address that next week. But what we should see from all of this, you guys, is taking all of these details in together, is that, it, that Revelation is wanting to communicate to us a great message of comfort and encouragement. Every one of us, whether you're saved or not in this world, is going to have to deal with times of suffering, emotional, mental, and physical. At some point or another, that comes upon all of humanity. Um, the, those who promise you know, that you become a Christian and you won't suffer, those are false teachers. It's a lie. Our Lord himself suffered, and we at some points and some levels, different across the whole church, suffer with him. Romans 8, 16 to 17 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we are children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13. This is a trust, 
the saying is trustworthy. For if we, ha- if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, which enduring is a theme that we dealt with on over and over in Revelation 2 and 3. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, in other words, if we reject suffering for his sake, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. But we are not alone or abandoned in these things. That's what, that's what Peter or Paul is saying to Timothy. Because of what we learn in this text, we should be better prepared to face whatever trial or persecution comes our way. And I know it had that effect on the early church. There are countless record of men and women being fed to lions, like as a, in, a, in, a, in the arena, in the Roman arena, to being burned alive, to being tortured, to being prevented to use money and buy goods, to being left out and mocked. And even in the most extreme examples, the ones that led to death, being lit on fire even, uh, the saints endured it with faith and joy, often singing psalms and hymns on their way to death. And why, friends? It's because the church, the temple has been measured. The worshipers have been, and they won't be lost. We know that this message is sweet, that it brings good news. And for those who receive it, it is a message of gladness and great joy. But for those that doesn't, it, there is an aspect of bitterness to it. But no matter what, we won't be lost through it. Just like with the cross of Christ, God is doing a similar thing in the church today. He is obtaining victory through what the world considers to be defeat. And to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy God, we need strength from you, Lord. We are so grateful and thankful that many of us don't have to deal with intense persecution here in Antioch, in California, in this year. But we know that in other places of the world, that's not the case. And throughout the history of your church, uh, since the ascension of our Lord, we know that many have endured great trials of the very kinds of things that we read about symbolically here. And so we ask, Lord, that you would strengthen us and prepare us to deal with whatever it is your wisdom brings before us. We know that what you do is right, Lord God. And so give us a spirit of joy and help us to delight, to be counted worthy even, to suffer with Christ, uh, should that be your will. We are grateful for your mercy and that we haven't had to deal with much of that. And so, Lord, we ask that you would simply have us to always look to Christ, that we can always be ready for whatever it is that you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> All right, any thing uh, I can help with? Questions? Tough topic. Good? Okay. Cool.